Welcome to the Nutritional Outlook Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grebo, Editor-in-Chief of Nutritional Outlook Magazine. And I'm Sebastian Kravitz, Editor. We're your podcast hosts. Nutritional Outlook is a multimedia publishing brand and leading informational resource for manufacturers of dietary supplements, healthy foods, and natural products. In this episode, we are interviewing industry trade association leaders to discuss the recent proposals for mandatory product listing put forth by the Senate in two recent bills. Industry leaders will share with us their positions on these proposals and what mandatory product listing could mean for the future of the dietary supplements industry. Join us as we interview some key industry leaders and get their opinions on this divisive topic. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. This is part two of our podcast series in which we talk to industry trade groups about the recent legislative efforts to pass laws with a mandatory product listing requirement for dietary supplements. Since the last episode, there have been a few developments to the story. Um, The main development has been that the FDA Safety and Landmark Advancements Act, or FDA SLA, has been officially introduced by the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pension, otherwise known as the HELP Committee. Unfortunately, the language in the discussion draft pertaining to mandatory product listing requirement went largely unchanged despite advocacy from trade groups. Even groups such as the Council for Responsible Nutrition and the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, who broadly support the concept of a mandatory product listing, particularly the language found in Senate Bill S-4090 introduced by Senators Durbin and Braun, made statements criticizing language of FDA SLA and demanding revisions. Um, For more on this, please visit our website, nutritionaloutlook.com, for ongoing coverage. Um, In today's episode, you'll hear our conversations with uh, Lauren Israelson, president of the United National Products Alliance, and Michael McGuffin, president of the American Herbal Products Association. These conversations occurred prior to the developments previously mentioned, but remain relevant as industry continues to negotiate for a bill that is favorable. For some, um, a favorable bill means uh, revised language, um, and for others, it means killing the MPL provision entirely. Our goal of these episodes has been to present the broad range of industry perspectives on the topic and to help stakeholders draw their own conclusions. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. Next, we're joined by Lauren Israelson, president of the United Natural Products Alliance. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. It's my pleasure. Lauren, can you share with listeners what UNPA's current position is on the suggestion to create a mandatory product listing? Uh, With pleasure. Uh, We support mandatory product listing. Uh, We've taken a very close look at the current bills. We've, we've always taken the position that we're for it uh, as so, so long as it achieves the intended objectives, which would be a 
uh, a simple and effective system for companies to register products with FDA with information available on the label. Um, FDA treats this as a very high priority. We respect that. Um, we also know that uh, our members and many other companies in the industry do business internationally, and this kind of requirement is very, very common. Uh, moreover, uh, we, li we live in 2022 as opposed to 1994. Um, virtually every company has a website where they very openly display their products, make information widely available. Uh, that is a requirement of many of the major retailers, particularly online. Um, if, and if FDA believes that this would make their work more efficient to have a better overview of what's in the market, um, we think that's an appropriate request at this time. Lauren, what about... Um... S4090 in particular, like, you know, when you saw the text of the bill, how it was written, did anything concern you or, you know, do you think it could be improved, specified, you know, uh, amended in any way that might make it better for the industry? Right. So if you're referring to the Durban bill. Yes. yes. As opposed to the, the Murray Braun bill. Uh, we're, we're really focusing on the murray Brown bill. That will, we believe, be the vehicle that will be uh, going forward. So if, if I can redirect your question, and it's the same question. It's simply it's the, uh, it's the bill that we believe is going to be the, the, the bus on which this issue is going to ride. And why do you believe that that is going to be the, the one to go? Uh, because it, it was uh, submitted by the chairman of the HELP committee, and so I believe that we'll have the, the senior position, if you will, as the go forward bill. Okay. Um, said that, it's also fair to say at this juncture that there is a house um, bill, but it does not include any dietary supplements, MPL provisions. So we're, we're only talking about what the Senate has done. We, we don't have anything to look at from the so to your question, um, are there issues that we've looked at and have questions or concerns about? Yes, there are. Um, there's a number of points that we believe can be refined and improved um, that as we look at it through industry eyes is what would make a, the most efficient system. So there, some of them are just technical um, improvements as seen through the eyes of, uh, I've got commercial background. I was at Nature's Way for 10 years. So I um, have an appreciation of, of how these, how laws actually end up working on the shop floor and in the conference room when people are trying to make hard decisions about, can we ship? Are we okay? Um, legal says one thing and sales says something else. Uh, that's a pretty common problem. Um, yeah, we, we want to make sure, and rather than give you specifics, because I think right now it's early days, uh, there's a lot that's going to change. Um, but we have, uh, with our colleagues uh, in the industry, really gone through the bill carefully uh, to provide specific suggestions that will both clarify and confirm the scope of authority granted here, uh, that this is not a pre-approval mechanism. Uh, it cannot be used as such. Um, 
and to also try and make sure that FDA is um, getting the information that is actionable or useful for them. Um, so I, I would say we have a number of specific suggestions that, that we will recommend to the appropriate congressional staff. Um, probably not timely to share specifics yet, because as I say, there's a long road to go here. Uh, we've got a house bill ultimately to look at. Um, and the staff prefer that we share our thoughts with them first before we, uh, we discuss them within the industry. That makes sense. Um, so a, a question, Lauren, you know, we know that there's been some vocal opposition to the mandatory product listing legislation that's come out. And, you know, you mentioned some of these potential changes, the areas, large areas where you think, you know, things could be changed a bit, you know, like ensuring uh, really defining FDA's scope of authority, mm -hmm. that it is not pre-market approval. Like, I don't know, like you've been in, you've been, uh, you've seen how the political process works for so many decades. Like, do you think that, you know, if some of those things are written more specifically into the bill that possibly that could uh, appease some of the people who are so in opposition to the legislation currently? I, I believe so, yes. Um, I, I must say at the beginning is I've read the, the as I say, the, um, the Murray Brown bill closely. It, it's, I, I'm very familiar with the concerns and the arguments. Um, I honestly have not found them persuasive in terms of this really is pre-market approval. Uh, that said, uh, and taking those concerns into account is it, we will make all efforts uh, working with Congress to assure that the bill is explicit, that it is not a, a pre-approval mechanism, nor can be. So I, I do believe if, if that is explicit in bill language, that um, a number of people that are concerned, that should relieve their concerns. Others may still feel that somehow FDA will try and find its way around it. Uh, the intention is to make it explicit enough that FDA would not have any discretion to do other than what is uh, directly in the bill. So, you know, you mentioned um, this being 2022, not 1994. So I wonder if you could, you know, since you were in active discussions with Senators Hatch and Harkin when Deshaies was drafted and passed decades ago, in your opinion, does the concept of a mandatory product listing adhere to the vision of Deshaies founders and how supplements should be regulated? Um, or has like how has your like thoughts on this changed over time? Like, what would you say about that? Sure. Uh, knowing both Senators Hatch and Harkin well, um, I believe that they would look at, at the question, what serves consumers, number one? Uh, what preserves health freedom of, of us, the public? Um, what assures product safety? Um, and they would, they would look at it in the context of, does this help create greater confidence in, among consumers? Does this provide FDA the kind of tools that they genuinely need to have? Uh, to do a, a better job. Yes, I think both of them would say uh, we were never against um, additional um, 
changes uh, in the form of other uh, statutory developments, knowing that over time, and nobody in 1994 really, really had any idea what we were in for. Uh, this was the dawn of the internet and the world is a very, very different place. Um, I think both would say we have to be adaptive and we have to respond to the realities of, of the current marketplace. Um, to that extent, I think that they would look at this just as they did, uh, would have with allergen labeling, with FISMA requirements, um, with uh, post 9-11 requirements for facility registration. There've been a number of changes. They were not amendments to Deshay, but they were bolt-ons to Deshay. This is a bolt-on and it's, it's designed to help reinforce the infrastructure of the principle of Deshay, which is um, first consumer health freedom, broad freedom of choice of a wide range of supplements. The proposed legislation to my uh, belief does not interfere with that um, and to provide the regulator um, who prior to Deshay um, is documented, well-documented to have exceeded its authority and to, and to um, taken steps that were detrimental uh, and also unlawful um, and impeded consumer health uh, choices. Uh, this bill does not do that. Um, I believe that it is a reasonable and an appropriate step um, I've asked myself the question is that if we were actively opposing this as an industry, um, how would members of Congress and the public respond thinking, is there something to hide? Um, what is such a great concern that you won't share with, share with us what's on your label, which you freely share with the public anyway? So what is, what is the hesitation? And I think it sows some doubt among policymakers as to why. Um, we have to consider all sides of this, um, and that's one of them. Uh, our, our, knowing our industry as I do, uh, I love the fact that everyone has a passion. Um, everyone has an opinion, and uh, there's a wide range of opinions, and there's a lot of passion behind those. Uh, there was during Deshay, um, far more than people remember or realize. Um, so the, the active debate going on now is very much in the spirit of wanting to reach an objective that serves and protects consumers, um, but there are different paths and different ideas of how we do that. So um, I respect the fact that there are lots of different views on this. Um, that creates for uh, a more robust discussion, and that usually produces better legislation in the end. Great. And Lauren, you know, you mentioned that the framers of Deshay, you know, they, one of the, their priorities was consumer health freedom and access. So um, I know you said that, you know, you, you, I think that you don't think that, you know, this legislation would impede consumer access in any way. What would, what do you think about the opponents who have argued that, you know, this type of a list could be used by FDA to possibly keep some ingredients off the market that they believe should be on the market, that the industry believes should be on the market, like CBD or NAC, for instance. Right, right. Fair question. Fair question. Um, I think that breaks into a couple of parts is that there are this, this mechanism 
um, would yeah, give FDA a look down capability to see what ingredients are, are in a company's products. Um, if they see ingredients of concern, uh, I think it would uh, either speed up or, or focus their attention on those ingredients. There are a number of ingredients that for years uh, we have felt need to uh, be removed from the market. Uh, spiked uh, drugs, um, you know, there's three primary categories where we tend to see this. Um, if mandatory product listing helps the agency remove those products with those ingredients, uh, I personally support that. We've been trying to do that for years. Um, uh, to the extent that it would affect products like NAC or CBD, that of course, um, we would start strenuously argue with FDA. Um, but as we have seen, they've done that already without a mandatory product re, um, authority. So they've done it. Uh, we are working very hard to assure that the bill itself would not further aggravate that, that question of lawful status of important ingredients that are safe, that are clearly dietary ingredients, um, that have a history of food use or a long history of human use. Um, that'll be one of the key, key issues that we'll be uh, laser focused on. So fair question, uh, but MPL itself, as, as we can see, would not be the trigger for that because that trigger has already been pulled. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So in your opinion, Lauren, um, given, you know, that you feel optimistic about the concept of MPLs and other potential solutions, you know, uh, should dietary supplement regulations and Deshay be modernized uh, to better regulate their current market? Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I feel like there's a knee-jerk reaction from industry that, you know, against regulations more broadly, like I feel most industries are having a knee-jerk reaction against regulation. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, Deshay, we're still figuring it out, <laughs> right? So right. in some ways, have we, have we over time discovered deficiencies in Deshay? And is it kind of like our priority now to figure out how to fix it in a way, do you think? Or is it just a matter of just like um, updating a law that, you know, does, it doesn't even doesn't seem relevant anymore in a way because of how much time has passed? As I hear the question is, is first, it goes to a, a basic, I would say, yeah, ideology that... It, Every person has, uh, and that's the, it's the role of government and the individual and the, and the role of regulation and control in society. Um, and as we know from politics, that that is largely a personal perspective uh, that goes the full scale of, you know, we need more of this. And others say we need nothing and uh, just leave people alone and they'll, they'll do their thing. Uh, that is their right. Um, not getting into that broader debate, focusing now on Deshay, um, I remain of the opinion Deshay is a remarkably modern bill, even today. The way that it was built initially um, was, was carefully considered and it was designed to weld into the existing Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act with existing laws and authorities with the view that those were well-tested and well-understood principles. 
and that we didn't want to, to create new authorities or other sorts of untested mechanisms, um, that's where you get into trouble because of unintended consequences. So uh, just the architectural design of Deshay, which few people today, first of all, if you ask them, you know, what are the key points uh, in Deshay? What did that actually do? It's kind of like Jay Leno on the street corner in LA is a whole lot of people say, I'm not really sure where Brazil is. And uh, that's probably true with Deshay. Uh, they admire it, they honor it. Um, but most people's working knowledge of it is, is probably fairly limited within the industry. I live with that every day. So from that standpoint, we're always using the benchmark and the, the yardstick of how does Deshay do relative to these challenges that we face today? Um, and a lot of it is are things that we did not imagine. Um, you know, synthetics, uh, for example, and biosynthetics um, <laughs> versus natural extracts. Um, certain categories of claims that have evolved that didn't exist previously, dosage forms that are new and different, um, the evolution of good manufacturing systems and technologies. Um, there are a couple of rub spots, friction points, uh, where we, we'd like to get clarification from FDA. Uh, but on the whole, Deshay has worked well enough that the industry has grown robustly for each consecutive year since its passage. Uh, that's a first strong statement. I mean, the bill works every day, never takes a vacation. Um, it's always operating. Um, and so when there's a need to address a specific issue, rather than amend Deshay, and as you'll, I'm sure, recall, there's always been a hesitation to open the hood uh, of Deshay because if you, if you want to change one thing, inevitably others want to change other things. And we've always felt that we got it really close to just what we wanted. A couple things we'd love to have another shot at it. We just ran out of time. Um, I'll use allergens as, as an example is... Uh, we didn't have an awareness and appreciation of the role of allergens in health and the problems it created for so many people and the, the value of an allergen declaration. Um, that's a separate piece of law, but it applies to Deshay and it just rolls into the fabric of, of how we regulate ourselves. Um, as a consumer, I appreciate that. I have staff that are really allergic to um, either nuts or shellfish um, that provision has saved a lot of lives. Um, and so it is with other requirements. Uh, the the uh, bolt-on requirements from the Food Safety Modernization Act with respect to PCQI, foreign supplier verification, or other good examples. Um, they're not part of the shape, but they're part of the, the framework that is the modern regulatory structure for dietary supplements. So I always tend to think of it as Deshay is the Eiffel Tower, but you've got all these other support structures and other operating systems uh, that work in tandem with Deshay. Um, so this, this would be the same is uh, this provision would not amend Deshay. It would be a bolt-on to Deshay with a very specific and narrow objective. Um, and, and that's how it's worked best in the past. And I still tend to take the view we're better to 
uh, do the bolt-ons, uh, if there is an issue that rises to a level of interest or importance, let's take a look at it. Uh, I, I try to be open-minded to say if FDA is asking for authority, why, what do they, uh, what value does this contribute? Uh, what do we lose? What does the consumer lose in this uh, uh, hypothetical? Uh, and so over the course of you know, nearly 30 years, um, we have not strayed far from the, the path of Deshay. Um, it's remarkable to see an industry the size that it is today and, and for Deshay to still be uh, adequate to manage that level of traffic. Um, I can tell you that as, as I've traveled the world, uh, there are in many quarters of the world is the statement is, wow, we would certainly like something like Deshay in our country. Um, a few countries, Australia says, you know what, we think we got it better down here and uh, they've got a good system. I'll agree. But, uh, and you have to look at the American tradition, the American spirit is the Shea was built and literally passed in the most American of ways as a populist expression of public will. Um, and that is hard to say these days. It's, it's Congress rarely reacts at the way they did to pass the Shea with such a remarkable outpouring of public support um, when it was really pick and shovel work, handwritten petitions, phone calls from a, from a phone on a retail counter, uh, talking to your members of Congress. Um, it, it was um, for many people, probably the best experience in citizenship they've ever had. And Lauren, you know, your perspective and not only the historical perspective, but the global perspective is so valuable to us. And, you know, you mentioned some international requirements, you know, things like mandatory product listing are, are pretty common. Um, but then, you know, you get into this bubble of the U.S. and the opponents who are, you know, talking to you know, people in the industry and saying, you know, this is this, this is pre-market approval, this is blah, blah, blah. And like those people they're talking to may not realize that in other areas of the world, this is already an existing requirement and that sometimes it's working quite well. Um, I guess my question is, how do you see that playing out? You know, like, is that argument, which is a very valid one, to point out that, yes, here are examples of other areas of this world where a very similar regulation is actually working. Like, do you think that will be heard? Do you think that will make a difference? Are people so narrowly focused on just not looking, expanding on their, their borders, but just looking at, you know, what they're afraid of in this country? Um, do you think that that would have any sway or will it have any influence on maybe putting some fears into perspective? I, I think it will um, be persuasive to some, certainly not all. Um, if, 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 if it's a matter of, of looking at it saying, well, line up the pros and cons, I think for those people, they'll feel like, yeah, those are all good points, is that this is commonly done in other countries from a company standpoint, it will be easier to register our products in overseas countries if you have a uh, unique FDA generated identifier number. 
in a number of Asian markets in particular, that will be very helpful and has caused some, some difficulties quite recently as China has uh, required, uh, has built a new system uh, similar to FISMA. And they ask for exactly that, a, uh, an identifier number or other mechanism by which the government can identify your product. And the FDA has had to say, uh, we don't have that system and had to build a workaround for that. Um, but for those who have a fundamental mistrust of uh, the intentions of government, no, I doubt that that will be persuasive. Interest and uh, that's interesting. And then another question, you know, we talked about bolt arm boltons onto Deshay and how you know that's what MPL would be if legislation like this. We also talked about how long it's taken for Deshay, still ongoing, still rolling out. You know, things like NDIs. Um, so you know, a, a mandatory product listing ostensibly would give FDA the eyes that it would need to see what's on the market. But, you know, another point is that, well, what happens after that, right? Do the second part of that would be they built, you know, enforcing against products that shouldn't be on the market that they find through the mandatory listing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mandatory, if, if MPL passes first and who knows how long it would take for, you know, FDA to, ramp up enforcement so it could actually use the mandatory listing to actually get problematic products off the market. Do you think that right. that's like a really long process? Like, do you think one can work without the other? I mean, it's, I guess my question is like, you know, you can do mandatory product listing, but then what else needs to happen? And then is it likely to happen to actually clean up the market? As I understand it, uh, MPL would create uh, a quicker way to have a look down uh, for ingredients of interest. Uh, they're not interested in, in multivitamins. They're not interested in the majority of products that are sold, um, but they continue as we do. Um, I do have a, a concern about spiked drug ingredients found in supplements. Um, other ingredients that are potentially dangerous, harmful. Um, if MPL allows FDA to speed up enforcement action, I think that is, that's in fact part of the hope here is uh, how do we find a way to sweep out of the market products that are harder to find? I think the key question will be is if a company chooses not to register or to list their products. Um, what, would, what does that suggest? Uh, two things to me is that they just don't like to be told what to do by government, or they have ingredients that they don't wanna put into a FDA database. Um, so if they don't have a unique FDA identifier, the product would be misbranded. And mislabeled. That would be a tool for FDA to be able to move more quickly against products. Um, the hard part with these kinds of ingredients is there's so much um, adaptability and changing the chemistry of something to something else. And if you build a case to try and remove a product and they say, well, that's not that ingredient anymore. It's, it's this over here. Um, that's been a continuing problem. 
so I, I believe it's intended to try and expedite the kind of enforcement action that I believe is appropriate. And companies that choose not to list um, now have to, to carefully consider, um, is it time to, to go clean and remove those kinds of ingredients? Um, if, it, if it did have that effect, that would be, uh, in my mind, uh, a desirable outcome that serves public interest and public safety. Yeah, kind of, I'm often kind of amazed at the amount of um, adulterated products that actually list their adulterants, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's quite impressive sometimes that they do that. But at the same time, there's also, you know, um, undisclosed ingredients. Conceivably, you know, that might be a limitation of MPLs that a brand will list their products, they will list all their products, but there will be undisclosed ingredients, um, conceivably hiding those ingredients from FDA right under their noses. Um, obviously that's a risk that needs to be made if MPLs are to be implemented. Um, but I wonder if it only, I guess the question is, right, is there a slippery slope? Is this going to only create a need for more broader regulation, more broader powers for FDA. Is, is that a, something that you are concerned about? That doesn't concern me. Uh, FDA has a well-identified set of authorities to, to deal with the kinds of scenarios that, that you're looking at, and, and rightly so. Uh, so no, I don't think that it's, there's a need for, for new and different authority this system is designed to create a new um, administrative process by which those authorities can be used to speed things up, to make things more clear, uh, to be able to um, sort data more efficiently under a system the FDA would design. They would keyword something to say, hey, how many products contain this ingredient? Um, that's the kind of thing I think that they would find extremely helpful. Um, so once again, I, I do agree that if there were new authorities granted in the bill that we haven't seen before, I too have a real reluctance to, to grant that. Um, the agency was many, many years ago was granted specific authorities, misbranding, mislabeling, adulteration. Um, these are the primary tools. Those don't change. They would use the same toolbox, but uh, more efficiently. And so that comes down to, I think, pretty much. So, uh, you know, what do you want? Do you, do you want a marketplace where the regulator uh, has the ability to quickly address problems, um, to identify the size and scope of an issue of interest, and then be able to do something about it? Um, you know, that's best case. Um, those that are fearing the worst case is that they would use this as a tool to wholesale wipe out categories of, of products or ingredients. Um, I, 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 I hear them. I, I don't see that as, a, as the real intent here. Um, and I've had a lot of things to say about FDA's misbehavior over the years, but, uh, and we'll continue to watch closely. And that's why we'll be very, very, um, diligent in uh, 
the language of this bill. Uh, I and others that we work with have enough experience in legislative language that we literally go word by word to, to look at every word to say, could this be understood in another way? It's not the intent. And um, just before this call, I was on a call doing exactly that with, with this. Um, and there will be many such sessions of doing that. Um, and we do that in the interest of the industry um, for companies to make sure that it's efficient for them, for consumers. Um, I, I always just put myself, if I were a consumer, understanding what this bill is intended to do, yes or no, plus, you know, for or against. Um, if my mom was going to be buying something or uh, something like that, you use that standard. And uh, th this to me um, meets the standard of, yeah, I think that's something that my mom would benefit from. Got it. Um, and Lauren, we just have two more questions. Uh, does what, what about UNPA's membership? Would you say there's unanimous support for creating a mandatory listing database? What does that look like? Uh, I think we have a strong majority. I think that we do have, we, we have members that have concerns, hesitations, uh, but on the whole, uh, this is very consistent with UNPA's philosophy of um, how we perceive the role of Deshaies of regulation of our relationship with FDA and the Congress. Um, uh, early on, when FDA, when FDA first said that it was um, seeking this authority, uh, we our position was uh, we're prepared to support, but we want to see language. Um, we're now seeing language and working on the language, um, and our position is we're a go uh, until we're a no go. If something were to be inserted into this bill that we felt was damaging to industry or consumers, um, we're prepared to change our um, yes vote to a no vote. Um, so it's, the goal is get it right, uh, achieve the intended purpose. And if it, if it veers off course, uh, then we reserve the right to change our views and our position on the bill. Fair enough. What, what does the timeline look like? Well, uh, this has a hard deadline. So September 31. Um, September 31. Yeah. So this this has a, a hard deadline that has to be done by. That's uh, here we are kind of two thirds through May. It gives us June, July, August, September. Um, there's a lot to do uh, in that. Uh, you know, I'd say from a legislative standpoint, uh, this is not unusual. Um uh, I, over the years, I've kind of compared it to uh, uh, velodrome bike racing. You know, everybody starts super slow, and then the last three laps are a mad sprint to the finish. And legislation typically is the same, is that as, as everything gets really serious and deadlines are looming, that there will be a tremendous amount of work uh, and energy going into um, making sure things stay on track. Uh, you, you go back and check your work and always checking to see if somebody has made other amendments or changes. Um, so there's, there's a lot of sleepless nights as you get to that point. Uh, it happened during Deshay that there was um, some last minute changes that folks were trying to make that 
uh, yeah, we uh, we opposed. And so we're familiar with the process. It's doable. Yeah, it, it and, can be done. Uh, and this bill, it's a it's a big bill. Uh, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's my other question. Like how big of a priority is MPL when it comes to this bill? Is it because it can it be dropped at a hat at any point? It's it could be. Um, it, it's an important priority to FDA, and, and they have uh, made that clear to Congress. Um, so it made the cut into the uh, the Murray uh, bill, which is a strong indicator uh, of interest to move it forward. Um, a side note is there's also a big section on cosmetics that would be, um, which is actually much bigger in terms of scope, is it, it would be the DeShave equivalent for cosmetics of what it was for supplements in 94 to really modernize the cosmetic um, sector. Um, I think it has an excellent chance of making it all the way through to passage. Um, that said, it's legislation. Anything can happen. So I, I think the only thing we do know is that it's going to be a really fun summer <laughs> for everybody <laughs> working on this. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's uh... cancel those vacations. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Luckily, it's, yeah. it's easier now. I mean, we can jump onto calls on our, our Zoom. It, it's, it's easier to communicate. But, uh, yeah. you know, no, people will take uh, calls and, and try to do drafting sitting in a parking lot or <laughs> um, standing over the Grand Canyon or wherever they may be. Oh, man. Um, well, thank you for everything that UNP has been doing and for sharing all of your insights and, you know, has putting this into historical perspective for us and just really, you know, taking us through what you've seen has happened before and, you know, what could happen again, Lauren, we really appreciate you being with us today. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'm sure we'll, we'll continue the discussion as the summer proceeds. Absolutely. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks very much. We now have the pleasure of speaking with Michael McGuffin, president of the American Herbal Products Association. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Sebastian. I do appreciate it very much. It's a pleasure. Always. Uh, Michael, so in our past interviews, you've been pretty thorough at outlining other actions that you believe are needed to modernize dietary supplement regulations that do not include mandatory product listing. So in brief, can you explain to our listeners why you feel these reforms are critical and you know, more necessary than mandatory product listing? The main reason is because our legislative priorities will provide benefits to the American citizens who use these products. That's really been our focus. How, how can we support, how can we advance health and education with dietary supplements for, for the, uh, we always use the word consumers. And I've started to say that commoditizes human beings. What I mean is my neighbors, my friends, my family, that's who uses these products. And our legislative priorities, if we were successful, would give them access to truthful and not misleading information. It would remove a restriction that exists there now. It would uh, also uh, reconsider the um, 
prior drug approval restriction. Uh, this is the this is the uh, statutory detail that has prevented ready access to lawfully uh, marketed CBD. It's what sent that hiccup into the NAC, the N-acetylcysteine market. Go back a decade, it's what obstructed ready access to red yeast rice, high quality red yeast rice products. So we would like to remove those obstacles. It broadens the availability uh, and breadth of supplements. And then we also wanna clarify what is and what is not a new dietary ingredient. We share the Food and Drug Administration's interest in ensuring that the, all of the products that we sell are safe. We agree when FDA says, uh, interprets the law as acknowledging that we have a safety evaluation responsibility prior to marketing, but we also think there's a lot of confusion as to what constitutes a new dietary ingredient, especially when it's a newly processed old dietary ingredient. At what point is a tincture of echinacea root a new dietary ingredient? We think almost never, but when we read the language that the Food and Drug Administration has put out in their guidance, it sounds like that they think actually quite readily uh, could we turn an old dietary ingredient into a new dietary ingredient? So that's another legislative priority for us. Let's clarify that with absolute certainty so that we're uh, back to really sharing our interest in a regulatory process that protects public health. And Michael, um, so other associations such as CRN and CHPA have said they do not believe that the bill introduced by um, Senators Durbin and Braun, S4090, is asking for or will lead uh, to pre-market approval. Um, can you explain APA's current position on S4090 and more recently the language found in the Senate Help Committee's FDLSA? Um, has any conversations with industry colleagues or legislators either changed or um, not changed APA's opinion on what these, that these bills may or may not represent potential pre-market approval? We have been, uh, APA has been very careful to not say that we read pre-market approval in the language of either of those bills. We do see, because the words are prior to or at the time of introduction, there is pre-market registration required, whether it's the Durbin-Braun bill or the FDA SLA bill that came out of Senate help. And we've been careful to say that, that right there, there's a pre-market uh, uh, registration requirement. It's in both of those bills. Could it ever turn into pre-market approval? Uh, that's a possibility. The Food and Drug Administration might at some time say, well, we're going to interpret the words of either of those laws in a manner that uh, might eventually. But again, that's not our, that, that's not our starting point. We haven't said that. Um, we think, you know, the same, you know, the advocates have told me FDA will automatically accept every listing and it would never consider not accepting a listing. Because of course, if it has the authority to not accept the listing, then it does get awfully close to pre-market approval. But there's an imperfection in the language uh, in that 
uh, or there's at least a lack of certain uh, of perfect clarity. Both of the bills say that uh, FDA will, or it says the secretary, but the, it'll be FDA acting on behalf of Health and Human Services will inform the submitting party that they have submitted upon receipt of a complete notification. So what does complete mean? Uh, let's just define it because here's what we want. It's the same thing that uh, advocates want to make sure that FDA could not say, we don't think that's complete. We don't think it's complete because you included CBD and CBD is not allowed. And so we're gonna rule it as incomplete. Again, we don't, we don't see any words in there that say this is pre-market approval. We don't see any words in there that say this could never become pre-market approval. And that's why we've continued to push back on that detail. But we have been careful to say, even though I know one of your trade press colleagues headline with, with APA in the headline said uh, pre-market approval. But then when you read my quote, it's pre-market registration because those are the words in the stat in the bills. Right. And Michael, uh, this is a question we've asked others who oppose um, the bill or mandatory product listing, you know, in a bill like, you know, S4090 or, you know, the help committee bill, if language were very specifically added in to spell out clearly that FDA could not use this mandatory listing in any way to keep any ingredient off the market. Would that change APA's position on this or make it easier to maybe agree to maybe negotiate more on this language? We are open to a discussion. That's not the only point though. We think there, there are other, um, uh, imperfections in both S4090 and Section 811 of the FDA SLA. But we continue to have uh, discussions with our colleagues, with the other trade associations. We continue to have discussions with our members. We continue to have discussions with congressional offices. Um, we have never said never. Uh, what we said for the last three and a half years is um, we don't see a need for it so we don't support it. Once we saw the bill language, we moved to, we oppose this language. If the language is cleaned up, then we'd be back to, could somebody please uh, clarify with, with a great deal of certainty why this is needed? Because we're still at that point of, we don't really see the need. We think it's um, uh, redundant to FDA's existing authority to get as many labels as it wants. We think it's unlikely to work because, you know, the companies that we really want pushed out of the market are those creepy creeps that sell uh, products that say dietary supplements and they contain uh, undeclared drugs. Um, but we don't think that this will fix that because they'll just register, and then and then apparently they're compliant. Um, and then we're also concerned about potential regulatory drift. Where does FDA go with this over? The next 10 or 15 years. It's, it's not crazy to think, or, you know, I would be naive to, to think that based on decades and decades of history, we should assume that FDA will treat this exactly as we think it should be treated. I think anybody 
with uh, experience in the trade uh, would have to agree that we need to be aware of FDA's history, which is to seek narrowing of availability of natural products and dietary supplements. And that we're, we've always operated in exactly the opposite manner. We always seek a broadening of access to a wide range of natural products. So Michael, um, some supporters of mandatory product listing point out that, you know, in some other countries, not the US, uh, there is a requirement for some kind of mandatory registry for dietary supplements. And they say, you know, moreover, in some of these industries, countries and the industries in these countries appreciate the benefits that a registry brings, you know, by keeping bad actors off the market or boosting credibility and transparency of the industry among consumers. Um, does APA have any comment on whether registries, whether, you know, some registries work in other countries and might that indicate that a mandatory product listing can work or can be accepted or beneficial here in the U.S.? Or do those examples, you know, not really apply to the U.S.? I, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the laws in the other, what is it, 202 countries on the planet with regard to um, echinacea tincture, et cetera. I'm somewhat familiar with some of them. If I look at the mandatory product listing perspective uh, or issue from the perspective of the US, we already have mandatory facility registration. We already have mandatory CGMP compliance. We already have mandatory uh, submission of serious adverse event reports. We already have mandatory allergen labeling. We already have, our FDA already has mandatory recall authority. There's a very robust regulatory system in place in this country. I believe there are robust regulatory systems in place in other countries. And the one that I'm most familiar with is Canada. And here's a uh, significant difference between Canada and the United States. When the natural health products uh, category was created, that federal government created a separate federal agency, one that did not have decades of complicated relationships, one that started with a position of supporting that industry and those uh, uh, Canadian citizens who want access to these natural products. Um, if we want to have the conversation about whether it's time to create a, uh, a, a something modeled after the uh, Canadian Natural Health Products Directorate, which I know has now been renamed and it's merged with over-the-counter drugs. Um, but if we wanna have that conversation, we're all ears. We, we, we would be intrigued by the idea that this class of goods should be managed and regulated by uh, professional, um, uh, by a professional, regulatory agency that starts with the position of these are valuable. And I don't believe the Food and Drug Administration starts with the position that these are valuable. I wonder if you could talk a bit about APA's membership and, you know, and obviously in your advocacy, you're representing um, the APA membership, but could you talk about like the opinion about mandatory product listings across your members and whether there is, you know, predominantly skepticism or opposition to the idea of a mandatory product listing, or is there general openness if it's done properly? Could you talk about that a bit? 
our members are not um, monolithically in favor or opposed. There's there are varied opinions. There are some members who support it. There are far more members who have uh, either they oppose it or they just think it shouldn't happen. Uh, when we've asked our members, that's what we've seen. A few support it. We respect those members. Um, more don't support it. <clears throat> we respect those members. But to some degree, this is irrelevant, the numbers, because what the board has to do, what I have to do, is get as close as we can to consensus. And when members have opposing views, that's harder work. Um, and But we went to the board. We, went, we started with our government relations committee, and we resolved, again, this position that we took three and a half years ago, rather than a position to oppose something that we hadn't seen, let's express with clarity that we don't support it because we don't see the need. And that's the position that we held. We then went back to the board when, when we saw the language in 4090 and the board took a position to oppose. And there are people on that board representing companies who support the concept of MPL. So we, we were able to uh, achieve consensus even though uh, some on the board support the concept. Uh, many of our members don't support even the concept. But when we looked at the specific language, there are concerns about um, you know, that lack of clarity on FDA's authority. Um, probably uh, more broadly, um, uh, we keep looking at both of those bills um, and wonder why the reporting requirement is so redundant. Um, it requires submission of not just the label, but also a whole bunch of information that's already on the label. And so what we've said, and I don't know if either of you had a chance to see that the feedback that we submitted to Senate help, but we laid that out in a lot of detail that, um, you know, trim it down, make it as least burdensome as possible, protect us from any uh, concerns about regulatory overreach, protect us from concerns about activist plaintiffs, and then we can have a rethinking. So Michael, you know, just digging into this really interesting concept of, you know, how, you know, I guess it's the uh, Natural Non-Prescription Health Products Directorate in Canada as a body to regulate um, supplements in that country, you know, might come up from a different starting place and be more successful at regulating supplements than FDA in your, is what you were saying. So I just wanted to ask, so what makes that, like just digging into that a little bit, what do you see as a difference there? Like I, I know like in FDA, is it the people, you know, is there some space between, you know, I know things were very contentious uh, when, you know, Deshay was being drafted and, you know, the period before that, um, I know it's been contentious, you know, in recent years, even, you know, CBD, NAC, but is it the people at the agency, FDA, that, you know, maybe don't allow this fresh start? And would, like you're saying, like creating a new body that would start fresh to regulate supplements, how would that make a difference? Like, would that, would that really make a difference depending on, I guess, who is at that new 
I don't know what to call it, but the new uh, regulatory body. Um, interesting, good speculation. And let me clarify, um, uh, I'm not ready to say nor has APA taken a position that we um, see the Canadian model as perfect. A lot of our members who do business in Canada uh, don't see it as perfect. It's complicated. Um, there are some uh, details that I, I, I'm not sufficiently familiar with to go into, nor are they really relevant to this uh, discussion today. Um, but I just want to back off on, uh, please don't make the headline, MacGuffin says Canada's model is perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I, but if you look at uh, what is it at FDA, there are a lot of really smart people there. Uh, there are smart people in the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs. There's a lot of professionalism there. There's a lot of commitment. So I don't think that it's simply the current staff of ODSP. Um, I think it's uh, it goes to both the history. And again, what Canada got to do was start over with no history. Um, we, we Our history... I think you got to go back. I, people have said, yeah, but what about the 21st century? And we can give examples in the 21st century, but we, we shouldn't forget that in 1973, the Food and Drug Administration adopted a final regulation that would that banned anything over than 150% of the daily value of vitamins and minerals. It, it didn't ban them. You were allowed to sell them as over-the-counter drugs, but not as supplements. That meant 91 milligrams of vitamin C was no longer lawful. That was crazy and it got overturned. That led to the Proxmire Amendment. But that's what that's FDA's direction in 1973. And 19, by the 1980s, FDA was blocking the import of herbs from China based on that there was no history of food use. And our, our industry and members of APA took the position that history of food use in China also counted. Um, FDA uh, continued to block import. A company called Femali sued FDA and won, that changed the law. So that's 1970s, 1980s, you can go all through the 90s, the mischief that FDA was engaged in and trying out new food additive theories to come after botanicals, and that led directly to Deshaies. It And it goes on, NAC, CBD more recently. So I think there's a policy mindset at FDA. It's not, it's not the individuals, it's a policy mindset. And there's also a tendency, and I think this comes out of the general counsel's office, to reinterpret all the time. So when we saw the... Uh, uh, NDI guidance, uh, both the 2011 and the 2016, there were all these new ideas in there. FDA had decided that the way you know it's a new dietary ingredient, if it starts with an old dietary ingredient, is if there's any change in a chemical bond. As one of the scientists in our group said, well, so that means a hard boiled egg is a new food ingredient because that's why you hard boil it to change the chemical bonds so you don't dribble down your chin when you eat that egg, right? So, but that was a reinterpretation and we see that with FDA. I'll give you a couple of 
very small and very current examples. CGMP inspections, this, these issues have come to me within the last four or five weeks. FDA walked into a facility and informed the company that it was required for its herbal tincture to set the specification for strength based on the constituents so that they would have to, if they wanted to make a tincture of um, peppermint, they would have to set the specifications uh, based on the percent of menthol, just to use a simple example. Well, the regulation doesn't say that. The regulation says the company is the authorized party to set specifications. You have to have a specification for strength, but it's not up to FDA to decide what that is. Now FDA is going into facilities saying, we've decided what it is. We've decided that your strength specification for a botanical extract must be a quantitative amount of the constituent. If you go back to the final rule, the CGMP rule, we've always um, criticized FDA for its failure to define the term strength and also the, the term uh, purity and composition. Those are the other specifications that were required to set, but FDA didn't define them. Instead, they uh, gave us, I forget what they call it exactly, well, they, they shared their thinking uh, on their interpretation of the terms. In sharing their thinking on the interpretation of the term strength, they gave us one example that strength would be a weight to volume ratio. For example, three pounds of peppermint leaf per gallon of solvent. That's exactly what this company that FDA is now challenging, that's exactly what they were doing. They had a strength specification that was weight to volume. FDA said, we've changed our mind. They didn't say that sentence. They just said, no, you're required to set a specification for the constituent uh, quantitative level of the constituent. And they wrote them up. This was a observation on a 483. That's happened to two companies that I know of in the last six weeks or so. FDA walked into another company and said, <clears throat> we see that your master manufacturing record has a, uh, a quantitative column called not, not less than, that you can't, you have to have not less than 100 milligrams of vitamin C. And then you've got an overage because vitamin C isn't stable, but you don't have a not more than. And the company said, well, we, 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 do, we do know that we don't put in whatever the number is, 130, 135. And FDA said, yeah, but that's not on your specification. It must be on your specification and it must be safety-based. And the company said, wait a second, where do you find that in the CGMP? And what, what they were told is, well, we just got some new training. FDA hired a national expert and the national expert gave us some new training and told us that we should start demanding not more than, and that that has to be a scientific basis. And the company said, now, wait a second, my capsule will only hold a total of 1200 milligrams of anything. And I'm not really worried about 1200 milligrams of vitamin C. And the inspector was, well, how do you know? Where's the scientific basis? And some of the ingredients that you have might be. And so it's just flabbergasting that FDA thinks that a, this is a company that's excelled in their CGMP inspections to date. They've never, FDA's never come in and said, wow, isn't that weird? In your multi-ingredient 
in your 12 ingredient product, you, oops, forgot to put 11 of them in. They've never forgotten to put all of the ingredients in. So FDA's made up this new problem. The company called me and they said, what do you think I should do? Should I just, what if I just make my knot more than 150% of my knot less than? Uh, I said, well, you know, you could do that if you want to just have FDA go away, but then you've established a new requirement for yourself because as soon as you have a specification, you have to meet the specification, but you're not really meaningfully addressing health because you don't have a health consideration for any of your ingredients. FDA wrote them up, an observation on a 483. So these have both happened very recently, last several weeks. So back to your question, Jennifer, I don't think it's that that inspector is a mean person or is a person that is out to get either of those companies, but FDA institutionally starts a new training program. FDA loves to use the word transparency, right? That's why they want this MPL. That's, they've got those four reasons. This is the first one. It'll increase transparency. Where's the transparency? Why wasn't I told that FDA's now got a national expert on dietary supplements? Why didn't we have some input on that? Instead of just finding out after the national expert had badly trained inspectors that there's a guy called the national expert. So there, I don't, I don't, and maybe that's back to, you know, what is the problem? The problem is an absence of transparency at FDA. They don't like transparency. It's not good for, it's very difficult to operate a bureaucracy, and I don't mean that as anything other than a description, in full transparency, it slows things down. But FDA is not a transparent agency in, in any full sense. They have tried at times, they are occasionally, but I don't think we should um, consider that a highlight um, uh, value uh, internal value of FDA. I just don't see it. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks for the insight, Michael's fascinating. Um, it's certainly back I to. It wasn't. I wish it was really boring. Seriously, right? <laughs> fascinating is a problem for too many companies. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, circling back to uh, MPLs, um, APA recently um, kind of addressed the potential cost of implementing. Um, um, this kind of uh, mandatory product listing. Um, you estimated the initial cost industry will incur for complying with this listing um, to be $20 million, um, noting that the association, the association is still um, analyzing the full cost of industry um, for such a database. Um, can you explain to listeners um, how APA arrived at this figure and what additional work APA plans to continue to do to map out the potential cost of compliance? Sure. We, we wanted to pull some numbers together promptly. So um, uh, the, uh, this is a very limited study to date. We reached out to just a few members and we just asked them to turn on a clock. It's a time study. How many seconds or minutes does it take you to uh, insert the part about the identity of your company? Because you have to do that once. How many seconds or minutes does it take you to uh, insert the data for each product. And one thing that we should have expected, but wasn't really uh, part of the questions, if your product contains two ingredients, it takes less time than if your product contains many ingredients because under S4090 or the FDA SLA, you're required to list all the ingredients. So 
we saw that we saw depends on the product. Um, and so then we just multiplied uh, the number of minutes. We had people tell us how many products they have. Uh, we also, because it was such a small group of members, we went back and looked at the dietary supplement label database at NIH. Uh, that currently uh, identifies 92,000 products as on market. And uh, we, so we're assuming that's probably the, well, that's the minimum. Those, there they've got names for them, but we know that that's not thorough. So maybe, maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's 120, maybe it's 150. Um, we just kind of threw out a speculation. Um, we're also now going back to more members. Uh, in fact, about three times as many as did the initial study because we want more data. Um, but that's, that's how we arrived at it. How many minutes, how many products? Oh, and then in terms of the cost, the hourly cost, we used a number that the Food and Drug Administration uses. FDA um, says that it costs, I think that the number is just over $250 an hour for them to conduct a reinspection. And so we just said, all right, let's use a number that's been published uh, as, uh, and of course that's an all overhead. That's not, most companies aren't paying, even, even uh, AOC is not paying her staff $256 an hour, but you've got overhead, you've got um, insurance, all that kind of stuff. And that's how FDA bulked up that number. Rather than recalculate it ourselves, we said, let's take FDA's number. So that's, that's the calculus, uh, Sebastian. That's how we came up with that number. We're, we'll continue to gather data. What we haven't done yet is tried to calculate the additional costs for new products. How much is that gonna cost you on an ongoing basis? And we have only kind of a marginal understanding of what's the training cost. So kind of there's, we've got the actual cost of it, filling in information. We did have one member give us, uh, maybe it was two, gave us an estimate of how many hours it would take to train staff uh, to insert the information. So that's how we see it as having these different uh, elements of um, the uh, administrative cost. And we've also been careful to say, and I know that uh, some of the advocates have mischaracterized APA's position as, um, oh, APA just opposes this because it'll cost industry money. That's not the case. Um, our initial non-support was because we don't see a reason for it. We don't see a benefit. Our current opposition is the words in those statutes. And a factor is what will it cost industry? We shouldn't, the United States Congress doesn't pass laws without understanding the cost to industry. So we didn't see that in any of the markups. So we took it on ourselves to go pull some data together. Maybe, Michael, if this is, um, if you're not able, unable to answer this question, right? So 20 million is for the whole industry, I assume, right? Um, I wonder if you have a number, like just like for like one of your average members, like um, average member of APA, like what would they s spend on implementing um, the requirements of the mandatory product listing? Yeah, you're right. I can't answer that question. We have members that have three products. We have members that have a thousand products. And so there's a big range. We have members with simple one or two ingredient products. We have members with very complicated products. So there's not a cost per product that we've been able to calculate at this point. We're still gathering data. Maybe okay. next time we're on, I'll say 
um, $88.14, but right now I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Just had to ask. Thank you. Yeah. And still on costs, Michael, um, you know, obviously no one knows for sure how much it's going to cost, you know, um, for, you know, this hypothetical database that's not been created yet, but, you know, um, I was wondering, so for instance, you know, your estimate of $250 an hour, you know, was taken compared to um, modeled after a number that FDA gave for like, yeah, I think you said inspections, like a, a different process. And, you know, there's a lot of numbers wrapped up in that. I wonder if the closest comparison would be to like the cost of what companies have had to incur if they choose to participate in the dietary supplement label base at NIH. Like, do you know whether that is, have you ever heard complaints that that's been burdensome? Like, I know that there might be differences in what's asked for, you know, in a theoretical <laughs> mandatory listing database, like we're talking about now, but, you know, to, compared to what NIH requires, maybe it's like a lot less or a harder database to use or something, but, you know, have you heard that the NIH one has been burdensome? I, I have heard complaints about the NIH database, usually by advocates for MPL. Um, it, it's, it's described as broken, filled with errors. Um, but the NIH dietary supplement label database, all that requires is submission of the label, full stop. And that's what we've asked for. If you want to know the number of servings per bottle, FDA, could you read it off the label? If you want to know whether it's a tablet, a capsule, or a tincture, could you read it off the label? If you want to know how many milligrams of it, each ingredient or the percent DV, it's right there on the label. So the DSLD, the Dietary Supplement Label Database at NIH, is uh, submission of labels. Much less costly, certainly. One, one thing that that brings up, though, is what are... American taxpayers currently paying for the NIH Dietary Supplement Label Database. We understand that it's about a million and a half or $2 million a year. So you got to ask this question, should American taxpayers pay for two databases? Let's list all the reasons why American taxpayers should pay for two databases. Uh, my my, my sheet's still blank. I can't think of any reason why American taxpayers would pay for two databases. So. Fair enough. Um, so let's get back to that, what you were saying. Um, I know you already kind of talked about it, but let's maybe go a little deeper if, if we can um, about you know, the recent comments that APA submitted to Senators Murray and Burr. Um, about the suggested changes to um, the Senate Health Committee's bill and the part of the bill proposing mandatory product listings. Um, you, like you mentioned, you suggested simplifying the requirements, right? Um, the, the current requirements um, requires a lot of data entry. Is that correct? Um, so you, you propose eliminating the data entry and just submitting the label on its own, correct? Um, correct. So can you discuss more about your reasoning behind that? Any other um, pertinent suggestions um, that you'd like to talk about from your comments um, to the Senate Health Committee? Well, Jennifer really just answered that question. Why are we saying 
only submit label rather than submit label and then type a lot of information that's on the label because it's it's less effort and less costly for companies to do that. That's the main reason. We don't see a reason to be redundant. It's somewhat related to, and I don't know if you were gonna get there, Sebastian, another of our key requests is we don't want FDA to create a publicly a public facing database, a publicly accessible database. And um, the, um, the obvious question is, well, well, wait, you can already find people's labels on their websites. You can already find them on the dietary supplement label database. And it sure sounds like op has got a great big crush on that. So what's the problem? The problem is if the database is official, then, and it, you know, this is the database wherein my company submitted information to the FDA. We think it will immediately draw the interest of private plaintiffs and that private plaintiffs will go into that database and they'll say, Michael, we're looking at the information in the database and the information in the database has a field, I'm making this up here, that includes your claims. Um, and we see that your claim includes supports uh, healthy digestion but we also know that we see that the, uh, uh, the name of the product is Good Tummy for Mike. We think the name of the product is an implied claim, but you didn't include that in this cell called claims. Therefore, breaks my heart, but I've got to sue you on behalf of the public to protect the public. That's what the poor plaintiff would be obliged to do, wouldn't they? So, we don't want a public facing database. And I hear, why do, we, why do the advocates want a public facing database? Because consumers will then be able to, right, use that information. So Jennifer or Sebastian, do either of you use any dietary supplements? Yes. Do you use maybe a vitamin product? Yes. And so I'll use the example and I'll name a name and hopefully nobody's mad at me. I use Thorne's vitamin D5000. And I'm almost out and I got to go over to Air One and get another bottle. But before I go, I'm going to go to the FDA database and I'm going to look at all 1100 vitamin D 5000 products. And then I'm going, no, I'm not. That's ridiculous. No, I'm not. It's not going to be a resource for consumers. It's true. Consumers would know is the product registered listed with the Food and Drug Administration. I just don't see that as a benefit for consumers either. I'm gonna buy that Thorn product anyway. I've been using it for two and a half years. I'm gonna keep using it. Got it seems it. to me, I just wanna comment um, that, you know, when it comes to, you know, that entry versus submitting a label, it almost seems to me that um, FDA would rather industry incur the cost than you know, the time it takes to like, I imagine it's easier to search a database in which all the data is submitted individually, as opposed to searching product label images for all the um, pertinent information. DSLD manages to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. It's the 21st century over there at FDA. There's this thing called machine learning, AI. There's very sophisticated um, uh, uh, tech technology now it's not an impossible problem it's a possible problem it's a solvable problem they can do it and and it doesn't make sense to have every brand 
um, install AI or machine learning in order to submit. So every brand's not gonna, you're gonna have a human sitting there typing into a database. Uh, so again, we think that FDA is sophisticated, they are. They probably are already using machine learning and AI for some parts of what they're doing. And, and they will continue to progress in doing that. They're gonna to continue to use modern tools to do their job. And so that's really our thinking is, um, FDA is not gonna have you know, some low level staff typing things in. Maybe occasionally, maybe some kind of review stage but again, I don't mind having that burden on the Food and Drug Administration um, because I think that that again relieves the potential plaintiff's burden on us if uh, the plaintiff's not able to take the position that all of the information in here was submitted by you. Therefore, if I think it's false, I got to come after you. Fair so enough. You I always imagine someone in a windowless room typing. <laughs> when I think of it, I know that I know that person, and they're desperate to get out, aren't they? <laughs> I thought I thought you were talking about me for a second, um, uh, Michael. So if you know, say that you know the burden does go to FDA, and it's so interesting that you say like, if FDA has a hand in getting some of this information into the database, like pulling it from the labels, then you know by having them involved it wouldn't be as easy a target to just go after the industry. You know, maybe it would keep private plaintiffs from going after, you know, from bringing more cases because they'd say, oh, now I'm gonna have to take on FDA. Like, is that, um, but you know, that aside, if it were easier, so, you know, if we have this database that, you know, all we do is submit labels and then FDA gets that information and still puts it in the field somehow, I'm not going to say I'm an expert at AI or anything, but say all that information is in the database, you know, based on some of the other arguments that have been out there about, you know, why that is not good. Like if we eliminate that, the burden of the cost on the industry, if that's not on the industry to put all that stuff in there, is that, uh, is it more, less unappealing, you know, or are there on its face, are there, would you still really, would you know, do you think there'd be still be a lot of opposition to just having that information in there, no matter how it got there? There will be some opposition until such time as either the president signs it or the Senate ceases to ask for it. There will be some opposition. Um, and I can't really speculate what, where, at what point, if ever, APA would move from opposed to either passive or support. Um, but certainly, uh, I mean, our view is let's do it a step at a time. What's the next step? Um, we, we know that mm, the, uh, an interesting, and from our perspective, step backwards, 4090 does not require disclosure of the quantitative level of each ingredient in a proprietary blend the FDA SLA section 811 does require that. Um, our members simply, they're, they're just adamantly opposed to it, almost to a person. There are some who said, you know, we stopped using proprietary blends a while ago. We don't, we, we, we think that there is a transparency issue with our consumers. We no longer use those because there's a consumer perception that we wanted to overcome. 
Um, but there are still a lot of use of proprietary blends. And I talk to members who consider that an important part of their intellectual property. Uh, so that would be another issue that has to be resolved. Um, I, I think there are others, but again, if, if what we saw was a redraft of one of these bills to trim it back to label only and the proprietary blends not demanded and the public facing database is gone, then we're gonna have a meeting of the board and we're gonna decide what our current position is. Because our position is we oppose these bills. Conceptually, MPL, we don't support, we would really like somebody to be, to give a more meaningful um, expression of support. Again, we hear about increases transparency and I always wanna make fun of that. I guess it increases sustainability too. You know, exactly what does that mean? Um, the, the agency also talks about that it would assist in their prioritizing of risk-based enforcement. Uh, that would be good if it did. It appears to me that FDA already has pretty good tools to uh, focus its enforcement resources where there's risk witness that they shut down a manufacturer who couldn't come into compliance with CGMP over and over and over. There are those who argue that they should have shut them down sooner, but that was a risk-based decision. So uh, you know, maybe we would come to be convinced that there's a meaningful increase in uh, and FDA's ability to make risk-based enforcement priority decisions. But uh, we would prefer a more clear communication of how that would be actually manifest because to date, we just hear it as words that are intended to sound meaningful, but we haven't been able to grasp the meaning yet. And uh, I think we'll close it on this one, um, but Okay, so it's it's hard to speculate, and it's maybe unwise to do so as well. But you know, with um with the you know FDA SLA, you know, this is probably the most kind of real potential possibility of MPL being implemented, right? Um, but it's also a small part of a very big package. You know, I'm sure you've been in touch with you know people on the Hill. Um, um, I wonder, in your opinion, you know, how much political will is there to really kind of push on this or fight for it um in the senate um obviously you know appa has to take it seriously because you know it has to um but you know in your opinion do you think you know this has a real potential of passing you know any legislation that has meaningful support can pass um it's fairly rare you know the number of bills that pass into law compared to the number that are introduced is a small portion. I wish I knew what it is, what that portion is, I don't. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to introduce legislation. One of them is to get the bill passed. Another is messaging. And you know, Dick Durbin in particular, Senator Richard Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, a senior member of the Democratic leadership in the Senate and uh, you know, a Senator we've worked with for years, he feels strongly about this. He is at least messaging about this. Um, I frankly think he really wants to get this passed. Um, he's got the support of Senator Braun. We understand that Senator Murray, uh, the chair of the Senate Help Committee, she really wants it. So we know there are three senators who really want it. I haven't polled the other 97. Um, I 
I don't know. Uh, there's a chance that this could pass. There's a chance that it won't. Um, and we're continuing to just engage in discussions. And we're also attentive to the House side in order for any law to pass. It has to be passed by the Senate and the House. If they're different, then that goes into conference. And uh, surely what we're talking about on the House side is our stripped down version so that if it does pass both the Senate and the help and the House, then in conference, we would continue to advocate for that much more narrow bill. But I, I, I mean, I appreciate your initial uh, comment there, Sebastian. It's impossible to speculate. We can try. I've heard people in the trade say anywhere from inevitable to unlikely and the unlikely being because this the the big fda bill the ufa the user fee authorization is must pass legislation there's a tendency for the the committee of jurisdiction to avoid controversial topics uh, they just need to get the bill passed so it's possible that that gets stripped out uh, especially if it's not included in that uh, House side, and I think to date it's not included in the House side. And then you get back to 4090, then you get back to the standalone legislation. And what's the will? What's the interest? What's the likelihood? There are lots of procedures that can be used in the Congress. Uh, Dick Durbin is a master of the procedures, he's been there a long, long time. Uh, he may try some kind of fail safe approach late in the session uh, because he clearly feels strongly about this. So I, I, I can't really speculate. I, apparently I can ramble for a while, but I don't know whether to um, put my money on it's going to pass or it's not. It's just uh, things in, the, in any Congress are unpredictable and the 117th might be more unpredictable than, than most uh, given the much more complex issues that they're dealing with. Absolutely. And I think we will end on that note, Michael, but I want to thank you so much again for taking the time to, you know, take our audience behind or our listeners behind APA's views on this, these very important topics. And it's always just a pleasure to speak to you. So we really appreciate you being with us today. And I'll repeat what I said at the outset. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Uh, your your professionals, your publication really matters. And I'm just uh, very, very happy to have an opportunity to speak with you on this or any other topic if we ever find another one. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this month's Nutritional Outlook podcast episode. Uh, we are always pleased to take you behind the headlines and provide expert insights from industry leaders. Uh, remember, you could always find us online at NutritionalOutlook.com, on LinkedIn and Facebook, and on Twitter at NutritionalO. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Nutritional Outlook, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editor-in-Chief Jennifer Grebo at jgrebo at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. Thank you so much for joining us again, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.